Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Don't you know we work homicides? Okay, how quickly do you think I'm going to have your phone records? So pretty quick. Bam! Got it. Okay? We've all heard the quote, money can't buy happiness. Surely that clever little saying wasn't created by anyone who's ever been broke. But in all seriousness, some of the best things in life really are free. Friendship, love, the gift of living itself. The ability to breathe air into our lungs. All great things, right? Sure, but let's not kid ourselves. We've all got bills to pay, and money may not be everything but it sure does make things a hell of a lot easier. If you have it, that is. We all need to make a certain amount of money to get by, and then even more to live comfortably. But like the late, great, notorious B.I.G. once said, more money, more problems. And perhaps no truer words have ever been spoken. There's a thin line between financial freedom and greed. Some people aren't ever content meaning their willingness to cross that line in order to get what they want. And some, actually probably more than others, are willing to abandon ethics in order to obtain a desired level of wealth, even if that means hurting others in the process. If you've ever been broke or poor, if you've ever really struggled financially at some point in your life, like having to choose between food or your phone bill, for example, then you know what it's like to feel desperate. Desperation can be a character builder, though. It can be turned into a positive if you're willing to put your nose to the grindstone and get to work. But if held in the hearts and minds of someone with a broken moral compass, the potential danger of desperation can be extreme. And if said person happens to have friends in the same boat as them, who are destitute and willing to do just about anything but work hard to get rich, there's no telling where hopelessness might take them but there is a high likelihood that somewhere along the way, someone might just wind up getting killed. Macon, Georgia. This central southern city is often overlooked by folks traveling through Atlanta and Florida. Perhaps it should earn a spot on their places to see list. It offers miles of hiking trails, picturesque parks and rivers, and famous tourist attractions like the Allman Brothers Band Museum. There's no shortage of things to do in Macon. It's located smack dab in the middle of the state, hence the endearing nickname, the Heart of Georgia. And one sweet woman who lived there, also known for her big heart, was Gail Spencer, a 58-year-old legal secretary at Calder Pinkston & Associates, a real estate law firm in Macon. Gail was a kind, hard-working woman. She was loved by her friends and family, but almost as much by her peers and colleagues. The Calder-Pinkston office happened to be dog-friendly, and Gail would often bring her pup to work. She was described as, quote, the best of the best by her superiors, and rightfully so. After all, she'd been at the firm for well over 15 years. She was responsible for overseeing much of the company's finances, And in fact, Gail was one of the few individuals at Calder Pinkston who was trusted with this great task. Her day-to-day responsibilities consisted mostly of managing large sums of money that came in from closing real estate deals. The firm was basically the middleman between the buyer and the seller. Escrow accounts commonly worth hundreds of thousands of dollars passed through the company's hands, and Gail Spencer was a big part in making sure that process ran smoothly. In September 2012, a woman named Tracy Jones was hired on as a general desk secretary. Tracy's daily tasks were much more menial compared to someone like Gail. Her job entailed answering phones, sending emails, and filing paperwork, that sort of thing. Apparently, Tracy had some prior experience at a different law office, but first impressions were not the best. Gail wasn't too fond of this new girl. See, Tracy was 38 at the time but acted more like she was 16. 
Gail Spencer was the opposite. She's the type of person you'd want to have as a boss, but only if you did your job. She was all business and took pride in her career. Basically, you didn't want to get on Gail's bad side, but Tracy didn't seem to care about any of that, as she didn't carry the same values or work ethic. She'd often call out of work sick or show up late, and Tracy would basically do the bare minimum and always had some sort of excuse as to why. During the times she was actually working, or at least pretending to, Gail would often have to later amend her mistakes. She tried to coach Tracy, but she was either unwilling to change or simply didn't care enough to learn. Calder Pinkston and Associates was a small firm, so the two were forced to interact every day. And instead of focusing on what she should have, Tracy Jones started getting a little off track, poking around in places in the office she shouldn't have, if you will. Being that there were so few employees, it wasn't long before Tracy learned what everyone's role was at the company. Coincidentally, it was around this time that Tracy started to take a keen interest in the amount of money Calder Pinkston and Associates was dealing with on a daily basis. Tracy would also eventually learn that Gail Spencer was the one in control of these funds. She'd only been at the job for a couple weeks by this point, but in secret, Tracy began studying Gail's every move, and not for the purposes of climbing up the corporate ladder, either. She observed and quickly picked up on how transactions and wire transfers were made, and she watched how Gail accessed a certain bank accounts. While keeping all of this newly acquired information to herself, she began devising a plan in private. Tracy couldn't spell the word embezzlement to save her life, but perhaps she'd seen enough movies to where the idea made sense. She hadn't even been working at Calder Pinkston for a full month, but there she was, already scheming to rob them for every penny they were worth. By October of 2012, the idea of stealing a large amount of cash from the law firm she'd just been hired at was keeping Tracy up at night. She knew that if she was somehow to get away with transferring money out of her employer's business account, she'd have to go through Gail Spencer. One day, Gail received an email from Tracy. She was asking for her home address so that she could send her a Christmas card. Gail thought the request was odd. I mean, who really sends Christmas cards out before Halloween? And she didn't exactly like or trust this woman to begin with so she was rightfully hesitant. On the other hand, maybe she'd been a little hard on Tracy, she thought. So eventually she figured, why not? And so she gave Tracy her address. This, of course, would prove to be a big mistake. However, Gail wouldn't know this until a few short days later. On the morning of Friday, October 5th, 2012, Gail Spencer received a knock at the door. It was early, around 6 o'clock in the morning, and she was already up getting ready for work. When Gail answered, she was surprised to see her co-worker, Tracy Jones, standing there in front of her. Tracy explained that she was in the area but was having car trouble, and then happened to remember, gee, I think this is where Gail Spencer lives. Incredible. I mean, what are the odds? To preface, Gail Spencer was no fool, she was suspicious of the impromptu visit almost immediately. She had just given this woman her home address a few days before, and now here she was knocking at her door in the pre-dawn hours of morning. Standing on her front porch, Tracy then asked if she could come in and use her telephone. Tracy assured her it would only take a minute, and while Gail was a highly intuitive person, she also showed a great deal of compassion to others, almost to a fault but she surely could never have predicted what would happen next as she generously opened her door and her home to her new co-worker. After some consideration there in the doorway, Gail finally said yes, but as soon as the 58-year-old woman turned her back to make her way back inside the residence, two masked individuals ambushed her there in the doorway. The masked intruders had been hiding in the bushes and infiltrated her home almost immediately pushing Gail inside and locking the door behind them. One of the men had a gun. It was a setup, but Gail didn't have a moment to even realize what was happening. Holding the gun to her head, the two men in ski mask barked orders, demanding she do what they say. 
Gail didn't recognize either one of the men's voices. They then began duct taping her to a chair, reiterating that they didn't want to hurt her and that they wouldn't, as long as she obeyed their every command. Gail was in an utter state of panic. As the men finished binding her to the chair, Tracy then divulged the plan to her in detail. She told Gail she was going to rob the Calder Pinkston firm. She then demanded Gail's key fobs and computer passwords. She told Gail that the two men would be keeping her company inside the home while Tracy accessed the firm's bank accounts from work in order to steal the money. Tracy's genius idea was then to wire these funds from Calder Pinkston to various checking accounts that were currently being opened that very morning by a fourth co-conspirator. As Tracy was explaining this all to Gail, that fourth individual was making rounds at several nearby bank branches throughout Macon, Georgia. Petrified for her life, Gail told them she would do whatever they wanted. She gave the three criminals the requested information and also included a detailed description of where the key fobs could be found back at the office. Once satisfied, Tracy also stole Gail's cell phone and then exited the residence, leaving the two masked men behind. Driving off in the same vehicle she had just claimed had broken down, Tracy Jones picked up her son and dropped him off at school. She then headed to the Calder Pinkston office, but before walking through the front entryway, she sent a text message, not from her phone, but from Gail's, and the recipient of that message was Gail's boss and owner of the firm. Hi, Calder. This is Gail. I just wanted to let you know I'm feeling real bad this morning, and I don't think I can come into the office today. I hope this is okay, and I'll see you Tuesday. Even with how short the message was, it was still riddled with poor punctuation and grammatical errors. It was also peculiar that the text said, See you Tuesday. That upcoming Monday was, in fact, Columbus Day, but it was not an office holiday, and employees were expected to work that day. Perhaps if Tracy had been in the office a bit more, she would have known that. Regardless, the group of thieves purposely chose that Friday to carry out their bizarre plan, thinking that the weekend would provide them just enough time to skip town. They were going to flee the country, and if all went according to plan, they'd be gone before anyone at Calder Pinkston even knew the money was missing. All four people involved thought they had it all figured out. This, of course, was wishful thinking being that this was a very real-life scenario and not the set of Ocean's Eleven. By this point, Tracy Jones was just sitting down to get to work at her office cubicle. The two unidentified men were still holding Gail hostage inside her home. Their instructions were not to let her out of their sight until they got word from Tracy that the money had been successfully wired. The fourth party involved had just wrapped up opening the final checking account, all of that new banking information was then sent to Tracy. Pretending like it was just another day in the life as a secretary, Tracy Jones was actually making several illegal bank transfers. And this wasn't just a couple hundred or even a couple thousand dollars we're talking. They figured if they were going to steal from a law firm, they might as well go big or go home. And for this crew, go big meant just shy of $900,000. Periodically throughout her shift, Tracy Jones made three transfers that day. One for $205,250, another for $249,750, and lastly, one for a whopping $429,550. She carelessly embezzled the funds from various escrow accounts, as one major deal in particular had just closed. According to Tracy, that was supposed to be it. At that point, it should have been mission accomplished. All four were then supposed to meet at their predetermined rendezvous spot, split the near-million-dollar take, and then go their separate ways, each fleeing Macon, Georgia. Gail Spencer was also to have been let go unharmed after the plan had been executed. Sadly, this was very far from how things would actually turn out. Whether planned or not, what ultimately ended up happening inside of Gail Spencer's home would bring this story into an entirely different world of depravity. Not long before Gail Spencer would ultimately be held hostage, her neighbors Lori and Ken Dalton stopped by her house. They were heading out on the road for a day trip to attend a football game that very morning, 
and they asked Gail if she wouldn't mind letting their dog back in the house from the yard later on that day. They anticipated being out late, and Gail and the Daltons were close friends, so naturally she said yes. She told the couple to have fun, and they went on their way. A short while later, Tracy Jones showed up and Gail was held at gunpoint, and then subsequently tied up in her home. When the neighbors returned home from the game at around 2.30 to 3 a.m., the morning of Saturday, October 6th, they walked up to their home only to notice that their dog hadn't yet been let inside. He was still there, barking in the yard. Neighbor Ken Dalton thought this was very out of the ordinary. Gail would never just leave their dog outside when she knew they'd be gone all day. And this was plenty enough reason for Mr. Dalton to stop by her house to make sure everything was okay. When he arrived, he could hear Gail's dog barking, whimpering from just inside the home. Ken knocked on the door, but there was no answer. Due to the fact that they were so friendly of neighbors, Ken and his wife had a spare key, so he headed back to his house to retrieve it. Ken then tried to open the door, but was unsuccessful. He put his key in the doorknob and unlocked that lock, but the deadbolt had also been locked from the inside. This caused him even more concern. Gail never locked that deadbolt when she left the house. She always made her home accessible to her friends and neighbors, just in case there was ever a need. After trying to find another way into the home by reaching his arm through the doggy door, Ken noticed that the temperature was extremely cold inside of her home. It was at this point he decided to call 911. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When police arrived, they too were unable to make entry. Every single door of the home had been locked from the inside. Eventually, the fire department was also notified and they were able to get inside by breaking one of Gail's windows. Ken followed them in once they were inside, and the first thing they noticed was that it was freezing cold, like Ken Dalton had described earlier. The air conditioner had been blowing on high, set to approximately 59 degrees. As one of the firefighters then moved to the bedroom, Ken Dalton made the mistake of walking in behind him as well. Lying there on the mattress was a deceased woman's body. She was nude and had a trash bag covering her head. At roughly 3.30 a.m., a firefighter pulled back the plastic bag from her face, conclusively revealing the victim's identity there in the bedroom. It was the homeowner, 58-year-old Gail Spencer. She had been a clear victim of foul play and was tragically declared dead at the scene. As police moved their way through the property, they noticed that Gail Spencer's car was missing from the home. There was also a strong scent of cleaning products permeating throughout. What appeared to be Gail Spencer's clothing had also been balled up on the bathroom floor, and upon closer inspection, it appeared they had been doused in bleach. The bottle was resting beside the articles of clothing, with the cap still off. Gail's medicine cabinet also appeared to have been ransacked, with various orange prescription pill bottles messily tossed about. The liquor cabinet had also been raided as well, as there were several bottles of Grey Goose vodka and other expensive alcohol littering the bedroom. Gail appeared to have been suffocated, and after interviewing other neighbors, one told detectives they had seen Gail's car leave her garage earlier that day at around 4 p.m. on Friday, October 5th. But again, it was nowhere to be found now. A couple of days would eventually pass, and the following Monday on October 8, 2012, investigators visited the Calder Pinkston office. They wanted to speak with Gail's co-workers to get a sense if any of them had heard or seen anything out of the ordinary. When they arrived, they saw someone you might be surprised to learn was sitting at her desk, and that was Secretary Tracy Jones. Right now, you're probably asking yourself, what the hell is she doing there? 
This woman appeared to have just gotten away with close to a million dollars and was clearly involved to some degree in an active homicide investigation of her boss, no less, and law enforcement had just walked through the door to ask questions. Tracy was supposed to be long gone by now, so why on earth would she be back at the office like it was just any other workday? Well, if you couldn't tell by now, Tracy wasn't the brightest bulb in the marquee. You see, the thing about trying to pull off an actual million-dollar heist, like Mark Wahlberg in The Italian Job, was exactly that. This wasn't a movie, after all, and Tracy Jones was no brilliant, conniving con artist lead character. In fact, she was far from it. Apparently, in her inattentive drafting of this script, she forgot to account for any possible margin of error and completely neglected to draft a plan B, should anything have gone awry which it did almost immediately after the money had been transferred. The reason Tracy Jones needed a backup plan was all thanks to that mysterious fourth member, the woman who actually opened all of the checking accounts to receive the stolen money. Her name was Courtney Kelly a 23-year-old woman hired by Tracy in the beginning stages of the scam. The issue now, however, was that once Courtney got all of the money, she suddenly had a change of heart. She decided she no longer needed her co-conspirators any longer, and so she abandoned the original plan and kept the near $900,000 all to herself, and then she took off. In short, Tracy was screwed, and now she and the two yet-to-be-identified masked men had a dead woman's blood on their hands, and with law enforcement zeroing in, they didn't have a penny to show for any of it. Being the educated criminal that Tracy was, she decided she needed to stick around to embezzle even more money. After all, Courtney stole everything. They didn't even have enough money to flee the country as was previously planned, even if they wanted to. Call it honor among thieves. But something Tracy didn't know was that Calder Pinkston was already aware of the initial $900,000 that had vanished from their account prior to the weekend, as it was currently being investigated right alongside Gail Spencer's murder. Tracy had already made countless foolish mistakes, but there were even more to come. One of the first people to be interviewed from the Calder Pinkston office that Monday was a co-worker of Tracy's, a woman by the name Patsy Miller. Patsy also happened to be one of Gail Spencer's best friends. Mrs. Miller expressed to authorities that she fully believed Tracy had something to do with all of this. What is your impression of Tracy? I don't believe a word she says. The day Gail was killed, Tracy came into work and told Patsy that she had just seen her earlier that morning. Gail wouldn't be found dead until the next day, but for some reason, Tracy felt the need to inform Patsy all about her supposed car troubles unprovoked. She told her that her car broke down and that she had no idea she was in Gail's neighborhood, but started knocking on random doors and was surprised when one of them happened to be hers. She told Patsy that Gail assisted her by letting her use the telephone, and that was that. And just as Tracy had been telling Patsy all about this, two men were holding Gail hostage back at the house during those exact moments. In addition, Patsy Miller informed detectives that Tracy had called out of work the day before Gail was killed, on Thursday, October 4th. In Tracy's absence that day, Patsy Miller said that for one reason or another, she and Gail chose to snoop around her desk. In doing so, they discovered a small post-it note, and written on the small, yellow, sticky piece of paper was an address. Being that neither of them liked Tracy much to begin with, and didn't trust her even before any of this happened, they decided to enter the address into an online web search. It came back to a business in Atlanta that sold expedited passports. Written on that very same sticky note was a name, Michael Brett Kelly. This person's name didn't have much significance at the time, but Michael Brett Kelly would begin popping up more frequently and soon enough. For now, Tracy Jones was certainly someone a law enforcement had an interest in speaking with, and so from her work, authorities would graciously provide her with a ride down to the Bibb County Sheriff's Department, where they would conduct their first interview. 
Tracy was first asked to recount where she had been on Friday, October 5th, but she gave a very different timeline of events than what she had previously told co-worker Patsy Miller. Of course, detectives had already spoken with Patsy, so they wanted to see if their stories lined up. Tracy told detectives she was going to meet up with a friend that Friday morning to purchase Loratabs, an opiate painkiller containing hydrocodone. She went on to explain that coincidentally, she realized that Gail lived in the very same neighborhood as her drug dealer. According to her, she figured, why not pop in and say hello? You know, I've never been there before, so I kind of got a little scared, turned my car off, just sat there for a minute. And I went and turned my car back on, and the, I guess the battery cable was loose, and it wouldn't crank back up. And um, so I sat there for a little bit, and I knew Gail lived there, so I walked over there, and um, she came to the door. In the very same sentence, Tracy claims, I'd never been there before, referring to the neighborhood she was in. She then goes on to say, I knew Gail lived there. The interview was not off to a great start for Tracy. And I asked her if I had to have something to drink, and I had to pee really bad, so I went and peed. I peed first, and then I went in there and fixed me something to drink. She said, well, I got to get ready. She really didn't act like she wanted to talk to me much. So I went in the kitchen, and I fixed me something to drink, and I said, well, I'm going to go try my back, my thing again, because I probably if I wiggle it, I can probably get it to crank. Well, she, she had shut the door, so I'm hollering at her through the door, and I said, if I don't come back, you'll know I got it crunk. If I come back, you might need to take me home. And she said, okay. And I walked back to my car and messed with it and got it crunk, and I left. Who was with you? I was by myself. You were by yourself? Mm-hmm. Okay. Tracy claimed she knocked on Gail's door, asked to use the bathroom, had something to drink, and then left. Naturally, investigators had a few more questions. How did you know where... Gail lived. Because me and Gail's hung out before. Yeah. I've been at her house before. Okay. It's important to reiterate here that Tracy had already told Patsy Miller she had no idea where Gail lived, but went knocking on random doors and miraculously came upon Gail's home. Now she was saying she knew exactly where Gail lived to law enforcement. She also claimed they'd even hung out before. Investigators asked if Tracy used Gail's phone that day, to which she replied no, and this was yet another clear discrepancy between her now two diverging stories. Tracy was obviously lying through her teeth, and they knew it. According to what Patsy had already told them, Gail and Tracy would have never interacted socially in the way Tracy had just claimed. When you say hung out, what do you mean? Well, I went over there one afternoon, we had a couple drinks. What do you like to drink? Wine. She liked margarita or martinis, but I drank wine. I don't really drink martinis. What kind of wine do you drink? Uh, red wine, white wine. You drink liquor? Every now and then. What kind of liquor do you prefer? Vodka. Vodka? Okay. <laughs> Interesting, considering the empty Grey Goose vodka bottles found in Gail's house. Regardless, lying about having a few drinks isn't enough to arrest someone. But law enforcement did begin to drop some hints indicating they might know more than Tracy realized. Did you walk directly at two gales when you, when that morning? Uh-huh. You did? Mm-hmm. Okay. You didn't knock on any doors or anything like that? Uh-huh. Okay. Not sure if Tracy is picking up on the fact that they had already spoken to Patsy Miller and were basically repeating everything she had already told them. Law enforcement certainly had more evidence than what Tracy was aware of, including the answer to this next question. Do you have a boyfriend? No. You know, anyone you see regularly? No one at all. While they were not trusting of what Tracy was saying, they still didn't have enough to hold her, and so she was free to leave. Detectives even joked with Tracy before providing her a ride back to the Calder Pinkston office that afternoon. That will take me back to work. No, you gotta walk. (laughs) Keeping the banter lighthearted was surely an attempt to keep Tracy at bay. They didn't want to scare this woman into fleeing before gathering all of the evidence. By her demeanor, she seemed to think she had just gotten away, scot-free and clear. By the following day on Tuesday, October 9th, Tracy Jones knew she only had one last shot in her get-rich-quick scheme. That's when she brazenly decided to wire transfer even more money. Yes, you did hear that right. During work hours, using the exact same method as before, Tracy had the audacity to make those two additional fraudulent transfers, one for $249,785. Okay. 
and another for $242,782, again from the Calder Pinkston accounts. This would now bring the grand total of theft to right around $1.4 million, funds that had all come from separate loan closing proceeds of the firm. This was clearly a desperate move, and a dumb one at that. Perhaps her most thoughtless error, though, was the checking account in which she chose to deposit the last $500,000, a personal Bank of America checking account, not belonging to Tracy herself, of course, and obviously not to Courtney Kelly either, but to someone else, a person who was perhaps the most evil individual out of all of them. How are you doing today? I'm okay, I'm tired. You tired? Yeah. Tired from being a thief, no doubt. Regardless, after Tracy stupidly decided to steal hundreds of thousands of dollars more from her employer, despite having already just been questioned by detectives the day before, she was then brought in for a second time. They asked her to provide her story again, where she was the morning of October 5th. Tracy had some time to rehearse this tale overnight, but a lot was unfolding quickly, and she'd have to come up with a pretty good excuse for what investigators would confront her with next. I'm not trying to be rude or mean, mm-hmm. all right, but I am going to be firm with you. Okay. All right, Tracy? Um, the, the lower tab deal, going over there to Eric's and everything, all right, I've already confirmed that's a lie. That's no, a lie. Listen, a lie. listen, listen to me. Okay. Listen, Tracy, I don't know if you have done gotten yourself. I don't know if you were involved in this from, from the beginning or if you got drug into it and didn't mean to, but your story about going over there to get drugs, I've already done, I've already done talk to people that said no. No, it's, it's a lie, okay? And the fact that you knew where Gail lived at, no, that's a lie too. Okay. All right, so listen, the only thing you're going to do is make it harder on yourself. Okay. So let's stop the bullshitting. Do you want to help yourself or do you want to go deeper? And I'm not deep? bullshitting. In between crocodile tears, Tracy claims that she loved Gail. Blah, 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 and so on and so forth. But to spare you the theatrics, we'll jump ahead to the most prudent parts. Right before Detective Daniel Shirley bared witness to the show Tracy was currently putting on, he had been in attendance at Gail Spencer's autopsy. She had in fact died from asphyxiation. While there, Detective Shirley received a phone call. It was a neighboring county sheriff's department on the line. Apparently, a man named Dustin had just walked into Warner Robins PD about 19 miles away from Macon, Georgia. Dustin claimed that a man named Michael Brett Kelly a former co-worker of his, approached him a few weeks before. He asked if he wanted to join him in leaving the country. Dustin laughed and said he didn't have money to do such a thing. Dustin quickly realized, however, that he was not joking. Michael Brett Kelly allegedly proposed a job opportunity to Dustin, a hostage scenario that would pay out handsomely. He told him he knew an elderly woman who had access to millions of dollars and that he needed his help. Dustin declined and after hearing the news of Gail Spencer's death soon after on the news, he decided to come forward with this information. This is where the entire mood of Tracy's conversation shifts, and it's at this moment her police interview switches into a full-on interrogation. I just left the autopsy, all right? This woman who's never hurt anyone in her life that's done everything that she's supposed to do. She raised a child. Single mother, on her own, worked hard every single day to provide a life for him, okay? Every day. She's worked. She's 58 years old, she was, but still getting up every day and going to work, all right? Hadn't hurt a soul, never been in trouble in her life, paid all her bills, done exactly what she was supposed to do, and then someone comes inside her house and kills her, and not only killed her, but possibly even sexually assaulted her. Gail Spencer had in fact been sexually assaulted before she was killed. Detectives really start to come down hard on Tracy Jones during the interrogation. There wouldn't be any more beating around the bush, or southern comfort, so to speak. Tracy. What? Let me just be blunt with you. You're full of shit. Okay. Well, somebody had to say it. Tracy's demeanor changes from this point forward as well. Her once overly confident, humorous attitude has now become more nervous especially 10 minutes later, when a new detective enters the small room. It's Detective Scott Chapman, and he had some questions of his own, mainly who this Michael Brett Kelly character was. Tracy, please stop lying. Stop. Hang on. 
I need you to stop lying to me, okay? Because in a minute, I'm going to start looking at you like you're a monster, okay? Come on, baby. That's ridiculous. I just told you the man's a suspect in a murder investigation. And I Hang on. Unless you're a part of it. No, what you said, why do I want to bring him into all this? Sweetheart, you, I don't think he's in Sweetheart, you didn't bring him into this. I brought him into this when I talked to you. Had you said his name or did I say his name? You did. Okay, so you didn't bring him in or nothing. You might recognize this detective's voice. If you do, it's more than likely from the Stephen McDaniel case, the creepy law student who murdered his colleague and fellow student, Lauren Giddings, back in 2011, a woman who he was obsessively in love with. I didn't do it. Yes, you did, Stephen. Why'd you do it, Stephen? I didn't do Steven. it. Stephen! She was screaming! Screaming, Stephen! That excerpt was from an entirely different case, but a classic interrogation nonetheless. Detective Chapman interrogated McDaniel roughly one year before, but now he was shaking down Tracy Jones regarding the homicide of 58-year-old Gail Spencer in the same town. By now, the detective was alone in the room with Tracy, had positioned his body to where he had quite literally backed her into a corner and moved his chair rather close to her. He asked her who Michael Brett Kelly was once again, and then asked her to call him. Shit, my man ain't done nothing. Let's call him. We'll call him. Call him. I gotta find his number. That's real funny, baby, that you can't find his number. And I saw you clicking on some buttons before I asked you if I could look. All right, let's call him. Put it down there where I can hit flat on the plane. Detective Chapman has an approach like no other, but it seems to work. Amazingly, Tracy Jones calls Michael Brett Kelly there on the spot and puts him on speakerphone. What's even more incredible is that he actually answers. Hello? Brett? Hello? Yeah? Hey. Hi. What you doing? Oh, not much. Truly, it's astounding how unfazed these people actually are. Brett? Yes, it is. This is Scott. How are you, bud? Just to make sure I'm talking to the right Brett that I think I'm talking to. What's your last name, Brett? Kelly. Brett Kelly. Where are you at, buddy? Steak and Shake. Steak and Shake. That's some good stuff, man. Yes, sir. Cool. Let me ask you a question, Brett. You gonna come see me? I can. Alright, come to the detective bureau. It was this shock that Michael Brett Kelly answered his phone. But what was completely mind-blowing to everyone at the Bibb County Sheriff's Department was when he casually walked in through their front door. I ain't doing nothing. So, uh-huh. Attack me. I'm not going to attack you. Oh, have me reach out. What, what are you looking for? Is that a camera right there? No, we don't have cameras in here, okay? This ain't the first 48, bro. Kelly made his way from the stake and shake to the Bibb County Sheriff's Department right away and claimed he had absolutely no idea what was going on. Do you have any idea why you're down here? Mm-hmm. None whatsoever? None whatsoever. Okay. At this point, both Tracy and Michael Brett Kelly were being interviewed at the same time in separate rooms. Detective Shirley doesn't waste much time. He wanted to know two things. What was this man's connection to Tracy Jones, and where was he on October 5th? Kelly said he was at home smoking weed and sleeping all day. He does admit, however, that Tracy is his girlfriend. He's also best friends with her 17-year-old son. Oh, and he is just 18 years old himself. Tracy, mind you, is 38 years old and all three of these people live together. Age was certainly just a number for this special couple. But Michael Brett Kelly's bizarre and borderline gross home life wasn't what the authorities were concerned with. They had already established a link between the two parties by the post-it note found on Tracy's desk as well as Dustin's statement but authorities now verified that connection via Brett Kelly's own admission. The next step was to find out who exactly was responsible for Gail Spencer's death. Okay, I can see it. I, look, look, Brett. Brett, now when cops say that they can see it in my eyes, just because I got a weird look in my eye don't mean I... Your just... heart dropped when I brought it up, son. I know you're lying, and I know you were there. Now, you, you got, got evidence? Yes, we've got oh, evidence. Well, once I see it, then that's it. Oh, okay, okay. Meanwhile, in the other interrogation room, Tracy Jones was getting a little hungry. Still texting you, ain't you? Mm-hmm. Don't y'all have any? Who are you texting then? I didn't text nobody. I swear to God. What was you doing now? I was looking at my Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Have some pizza. You sure can. I so, probably won't have some more pepperoni to bring. Oh, it's pepperoni. Going on as if there wasn't a care in the world. Laughing, pizza, perusing Facebook on her phone, and even questionably texting her boyfriend, Michael Brett Kelly, from the other room. Tracy was relaxed. Maybe she'd accepted the idea of life in prison by now. Or maybe she thought her boyfriend would keep his mouth shut. Regardless of what she thought, investigators were in fact breaking Kelly down in the other room as the minutes passed. And before long, Tracy would lose her appetite altogether. Her name was Gail. Okay, my name is Brett. And I don't know how to have anything to do involved myself with that lady. Brett Kelly sat tough with his arms crossed, but the detective's patience was wearing thin. Being that Kelly had already admitted to being jobless with few prospects, the detectives then ask him if he still owns a motorcycle. He confirms that he does still in fact own it, though admittedly he has been trying to sell it as of late due to limited funds. The reasoning behind this apparently irrelevant question would become clear soon enough, after detectives reveal that they know Michael Brett Kelly recently made a large deposit into his own personal checking account. I don't know you shit. I don't know. I don't know Tracy shit. You know I don't who know I own? Shit. You don't know. You know who I owe? That fifty-eight-year-old woman. That's who I owe. And I'm gonna find out. All right. I already got a good damn idea of who killed her. All right. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you. You don't have the skills, son, to fuck with us down here. Let me just be blunt. You don't have that skill. Okay. So. Play all fucking day long, because we got all night, all right? I promise you that. You don't have the skill to fuck with us down here. I don't have a job, so I'll be here all day. That's right. And how about your 12 grand that you put in the bank, or was put in the bank? Guess who's got it? We do. After confronting Kelly with the fact that they already know about and have seized his mysterious $12,000 windfall, they then leave the room. Upon returning, Detective Chapman confronts Kelly with a copy of Dustin's written statement, describing in detail how he had apparently attempted to recruit the man to take an older woman hostage, a woman who apparently had access to millions of dollars. Detective Chapman begins chipping away at Kelly's tough exterior, aligning himself early on as one of the 18-year-old man's only allies. He vaguely explains how, quote, others are talking, and it doesn't look good for the group. Then and only then does Michael Brett Kelly begin to crack. I already know I'm going to do time for this. Okay. I already know you don't sweet sugar shit. Okay. Know. All right. But I don't know if I can reduce my time. Okay. We don't make promises here, but the Why fact not? that, you know. You know, can't forge signatures. No, we can't forge signatures. That name. I was fucked. But it don't say my name here. Oh, he did well, not. I know, I know, I know. I know. You got my scissors yet? Mm-mm. I ain't gonna lie to you. And y'all honestly got Seth up here? Yes, we did. And this honestly did happen at work. It did honestly happen at yeah, work? Okay, did. I believe you. Now, when I'm looking at you, I believe you. Okay. It honestly did. As long as I don't get a lethal injection. Sensing that he may finally have the young man teetering on the brink of a confession, he reads Michael Kelly his Miranda rights before continuing on. But before speaking, Kelly nervously spins his former co-worker's written statement about on the table. It's his one apparent mistake in what he likely otherwise believed was an airtight plan. He sighs heavily and then asks if he can first call his mother, a request Detective Chapman gladly grants. Mom! Yes. Where are you at? I'm at home. Alright, don't say anything. Just let me talk. I love you. I love you. Yeah. <laughs> I love you a lot. I love you a lot. What's going on, baby? <laughs> Tell Dad I love it. And I love you, Mom. I love you. What's going on? Bye. That was that was a very manly thing to do. Right. Okay, buddy. All right. 
Huh. Now you give your word. If you're funny and you're sorry, you won't tell. Yeah. Man, I'm fucking them all over right now. Fuck them all over, dude. You know what? Brett, they, hey, you don't think they're not fucking you over? Realizing that he was indeed being, quote, fucked over by his so-called co-conspirators, all of whom had apparently pledged the criminal's oath of silence, Kelly finally begins to talk, but apparently mid-sentence, as second thoughts about implicating anyone else in the crime. He first tries to convince Detective Chapman that he went to Gail Spencer's house alone that day, but Detective Chapman isn't buying it and continues pressing on the now crumbling 18-year-old. Kelly first admits that after trying unsuccessfully to recruit his friend Dustin, he called several others in an effort to put together a team to carry out the plan. He then admits what detectives already knew all along, that Tracy Jones was most definitely involved, as she had dropped him off at Gail Spencer's house on Friday morning. He then reluctantly begins revealing what actually happened inside of Gail's home after Tracy left. I had a shooter. I know y'all know that. Mm-hmm. I know she died of suffocation. How? I mean, how'd you suffocate her? Can you say a prayer with me first? And I'll tell you everything. Yeah. You tell the detail. Yeah. I'm not. You want you to you lead it or? You do it, please. Okay. Michael Brett Kelly had just confessed, vaguely. He then asked the detective if he'd say a prayer with him. In return, he promised to divulge everything he knew about the murder. Detective Chapman agrees, and both men bow their heads together solemnly, the detective leading the teen through a brief prayer, before he would ultimately reveal the hell that went on inside of Gail Spencer's home. I walked in, had a pistol put it to her head, taped her up, put her on the bed, on and tied her, let her go use the restroom when she asked and whatnot, and then I didn't tape her up no more. Because I felt sorry. I let her watch TV. I let her smoke cigarettes. I shot a liquor. She didn't. She just sat there. And then my sister was involved also. But I don't know where she's at, honestly. I don't. His sister was Courtney Kelly, and she was still off somewhere shopping. Initially, Brett would say he was the only one inside Gail's house that day. But soon enough, detectives would learn that was not the case. Now, you said you just, you suffocated her with a plastic bag, right? Mm-hmm. Did you ever put anything around her neck, like a pair of... Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Did you just hold the bag over her head? I didn't do nothing. I just she didn't fight with you? She didn't do nothing. He then went on to say that he burnt his gloves and clothing inside of a trash can in a public park, no less. He even told them what river he tossed his handgun in. Considering all of this, authorities knew he was leaving out some of the key details. They continue pressing Brett a bit more, and eventually, he throws his girlfriend Tracy under the bus as well. Tracy told you to go do it? Yes. Yes? Okay. And why did Tracy tell you to go do this? That's all I was told to do. She said I needed to hold this woman hostage up, and then wait. I said, wait for what? She said, wait till I call you. I said, all right. And then she called me and she said, do it. So I did it. Do it mean to kill her? According to Michael Brett Kelly, after the first round of funds were initially stolen from Calder Pinkston, Tracy called him back and said, quote, do it. In other words, she was giving him the code word to murder Gail Spencer. Detectives had gotten all they could from the now-confessed killer, and his interview eventually wrapped up. The detective then heads next door to inform Tracy that Brett has confessed to everything and blamed her as the mastermind behind the entire failed plot. It's at this point Tracy begins to fold herself, perhaps thinking she might get a better deal if she too confesses. She was left with no other option but to admit her involvement right there on the spot. She was never supposed to be killed. Okay. That, that was never the, a plan to kill her. That was not the plan at all. And who were these two boys? Um... One was Brett, and I don't know the other guy's name. It's a black guy. It is a black guy? Yes. So it's Brett, and do you don't even know the first name of this black guy? No, I don't. Tracy confesses to organizing the entire embezzlement scheme, but claims she had no knowledge of a plan to commit murder, 
and that Michael Brett Kelly was solely responsible for that horrific aspect of the crime. The other man she's speaking of here, the last person to be identified, was Keith Anthony Dozier. He was Michael Brett Kelly's friend, the other masked man who held Gail hostage the day she was killed. During Brett Kelly's confession, he eventually gave up Dozier's name to authorities, so they didn't actually need it from Tracy. Michael Brett Kelly was supposed to meet with Dozier at the Steak and Shake restaurant, where he was supposed to deliver him his cut of the money, $5,000. After learning this, law enforcement intercepted Dozier at the fast food restaurant the following day, and then brought him in for questioning as well. You prefer to be called Keith or Anthony? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter? Okay, Keith. Keith Anthony Dozier is read his rights, and detectives ask if he knows anything about the death of Gail Spencer, which he vehemently denies. Investigators already have confessions from two parties who were involved, Michael Brett Kelly and Tracy Jones, and both have subsequently already been arrested and charged with murder. But they already know Dozier was also involved, but they need to find out to what degree, and they waste no time in presenting the evidence at hand they have already collected. I'm not going to cut any corners with you or anything or say, I'm not here to bullshit with you, all right? right, We've already talked to all of them. Do you know where they're at? Do you know where Brett's at? Either. No. Brett's in jail. Brett's in jail for murder. So is the other girl, Tracy. She's in jail for murder. They have stated your involvement in this murder, okay? And that you were there. Does that ring a bell? No, sir. Dozier used to work with Michael Brett Kelly at a Nissan dealership. He said the last time he spoke with Brett, he told him that he was leaving the country, just as he had told Dustin before. But Keith Dozier would make a different choice than Dustin did. He would also take the longest to cave out of anyone. But after realizing he wasn't going anywhere anytime soon, he eventually begins to admit his involvement, slowly. Keith Dozier doesn't give them everything all at once. He instead asks if he can call his wife. In return, he explains he'll tell investigators about his and Brett Kelly's business arrangement to start. He asked me to meet him. He said you're gonna give me like five thousand dollars. That's what it was about. He said he didn't want to say it over the phone. So I went and met with him. Pretty much he just told me that we was just gonna be babysitting all day. I was like, that don't it sounds easy, but nothing's ever easy. Holding up their end of the bargain, authorities then give Dozier his phone call. His wife can be heard crying on the speakerphone as he calls from the interrogation room. He tells her he's not sure when he's coming home. Keith Dozier has admitted that he was supposed to follow through with the kidnapping, but claims he never did. He said he was with his wife when the murder occurred and that she was his alibi. Eventually, Detective Scott Chapman takes over. Sensing how much Keith cared for his wife, he uses that fact to his advantage when he threatens to lock her up right along with him. And that's when Keith Anthony Dozier's entire world came crumbling down. I was with my wife all day. Really? Because Officer Chapman locked up your wife for lying, for felony false statements. And then she was on the news with the other people involved in this murder case. Look at me, man. I know this is tough. I don't believe you, Okay, man. give me believe- 10 minutes, all right? That's all I'm asking for is 10 minutes and another cigarette, okay? The detective throws a lighter and a pack of cigarettes there on the table, per his request. Courtney Kelly was yet to be detained, but authorities gained access to her banking accounts and were tracking her down in real time as the interrogations were unfolding there at the police station. Keith Dozier sat in the interview room, smoking one of his very last cigarettes as a free man, before finally reaching his wit's end. After snuffing out the filter and calling his wife once more, he then begins confessing to his crimes. But what he told the detectives next had yet to have been revealed. The very gruesome details of what actually took place inside Gail Spencer's house. Keith Anthony Dozier would then go on to provide a vivid description of the horrific torture and subsequent murder of Gail Spencer. Brett went in there, he grabbed her, put a gun to her face, told her not to say anything, don't scream or nothing. Then Tracy walked out. He got duct taped. Tied her up. She was so scared, shaking so bad. I thought she was going to die from a heart attack or a stroke or something. She was like, what do y'all want? You know, I don't have much. I'll give you what I want. 
I was behind her. I just kept rubbing her shoulders like, I'm sorry, I just had to be you. She just kept saying, please don't let him kill me. And I was like, oh, I'm trying my best. Nobody said anything about killing anybody. I untied her. And I was like, she's not going to go nowhere. You got a gun. I knew she was in shock because she was just shaking. She was just staring off in the distance. I had got her some water. You know what I'm saying? It'll all be over soon. We was waiting for Tracy to transfer all the money out. Brett comes to me. He's like, bro, don't come in the room. And I was like, why? He's like, just don't come in the room. Just give me like five minutes. Five, maybe 10 minutes go by. He comes back out. He's like, all right, it's cool. Brett would get a phone call. He's talking to someone. He's like, he's like, I might have to kill him. I'm like, kill who? For what? Before we proceed with Keith Anthony Dozier's confession, we must warn our listeners at this point that the detailed account you're about to hear next is extremely graphic in nature and involves explicit depictions of sexual assault. He's like, bro, I made a suck my dick. I was like... Why would you do something that stupid? Because he said he busted her mouth and he made her swallow. I was like, it's going to come back to you. He's like, well, we got to kill her. I was like, shit, even if you kill her, they're still going to find it. Dozier explains that Michael Brett Kelly forced himself upon Gail Spencer and made her perform oral sex. It was at this point he claims Brett Kelly decided he'd have to kill Gail. But according to Dozier, this decision only came after Brett Kelly spoke with his mother on the telephone. He's like, no, I, I talked to my mom, and, you know what I'm saying, she said stomach acids are going to eat it all up, and, and I was like, that shit, that shit don't sound right. One thing, like, you know, after you die, everything stops working. Michael Brett Kelly conveniently left all of this information out regarding the sexual assault, but this would only prove the beginning of Gail's torment. Threatened to kill her grandchildren. He's like, I'm not going to make you do it. He's like, you've been with me this long, so he's like, just stay and watch. Ten minutes go by. And then I hear a bunch of wrestling around. I, I could hear her screaming. Keith Dozier then explains that he could hear Gail utter her final words. During the muffled altercation, she yelled out, You promised. You promised. He comes running out the room. He's rummaging through the kitchen. I look in the room, and she's snoring. Like, you know, like she's been knocked out. And I was like, I was like what did you do to her? She's like, I tried to suffocate her. Michael Brett Kelly attempted to kill Gail Spencer by smothering her with a pillow, but he was ultimately unsuccessful. She had been knocked unconscious but was still alive. Keith Dozier then revealed the sickening details of what Kelly chose to do next. He comes back with a trash bag. I couldn't watch it. She just laid out on the bed and he starts spraying Clorox everywhere. Then... He called somebody. He was like, the bitch is dead. I didn't kill her. I didn't rape her. I, I swear I did. I know you did, buddy. All right. <laughs> Keith Dozier is the Keith Dozier stood idly by outside of Gail's bedroom door while Michael Brett Kelly placed a trash bag over her head until she stopped breathing. Not once did he attempt to intervene. After the murder, the two young men stole Gail's vehicle. They even took a trip to get food at a nearby drive through restaurant before abandoning the car, not even a mile from Tracy and Kelly's apartment. Once a search warrant was obtained for Tracy and Brett Kelly's residence, a manila folder above the refrigerator was found. It contained all of the various checking account information that was used in the heist. Authorities also found various orange pill bottles on Tracy and Brett's nightstand. They were prescribed to Gail Spencer. They also found a Taurus brand firearm box in the bedroom, which would later be identified as belonging to the handgun that was used in the kidnapping. Keith Dozier was arrested and charged with murder as well. But where was Michael's sister, Courtney Kelly? Well, she most definitely was not in Macon any longer, but she hadn't gone far. Courtney was living her best life about an hour and a half drive away up in Atlanta. Apparently, she was not at all concerned with leaving behind a paper trail either, because she was using her own debit card. A lot. Detectives were actively tracking her move by watching her bank statements. October 9, 2012. ATM withdrawal, $600. 
Transaction Sephora, $7,942.28. Transaction Tiffany & Company, Atlanta, $6,859.13. And lastly, a transaction for $9,272 paid to a Hilton Garden Inn located in Atlanta, Georgia. Authorities easily obtained the hotel address where they would inevitably locate and arrest Courtney Kelly. When she was apprehended, her bank statement showed an active current balance of $812,643.20. It was originally Courtney Kelly's designated job to pick up the passports in Atlanta, but she never did. Instead, she backed out of the plan, and with all the money already in her possession, she figured why not treat herself to deluxe room service in the city, along with various other luxury items with all that cash. When Courtney was finally brought back to the sheriff's department in Macon, she had an oversized bag of makeup with her. She put it on the table and made it a point to tell investigators not to let anyone touch it. She explained furthermore that it was very expensive. What was the plan? There was a plan that was hashed. Your name's already been thrown in there, baby, so we already know that. Okay, okay? That's, that's fine. Right. No, I understand that, but mm -hmm. I don't know anything about the murder. And when I was told mm -hmm. about that, right. I didn't believe it. I just laughed and said, no, you did not. You know, mm -hmm. I did not believe any of that. Tracy Jones was eventually brought in for her third and final interview as well this time a sporting handcuffs and an orange jumpsuit. She would ultimately confess to all of the illegal bank transactions, including the last two she sent from Calder Pinkston in a last-ditch effort to become wealthy. Unfortunately for her, she would already be in custody before that would ever happen. The checking account Tracy sent those final transactions to belonged to none other than her boyfriend, Michael Brett Kelly, adding one final act of sheer genius to the list. Gail C. Spencer, July 28, 1954 to October 6, 2012. Beloved mother, daughter, sister, aunt, and grandmother. Her love was a blessing. Gigi lives with us in memory and will forevermore. These were the words etched into Gail Spencer's gravestone. She was laid to rest on Thursday, October 11, 2012. Before Gail's funeral even took place, all four of the individuals involved in her murder were already behind bars. They were charged with burglary, theft by taking, false imprisonment, aggravated assault, and felony and malice murder. In addition, Michael Brett Kelly was charged with one count of aggravated felony sodomy for sexually assaulting Gail before killing her. Michael Brett Kelly, Tracy Jones, and Courtney Kelly would all eventually plead guilty to the crime, thus avoiding a trial. Tracy and Brett would each receive a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Courtney Kelly also received a life sentence, but she will one day be eligible for parole. The one person who chose to try his luck in front of a jury was Keith Anthony Dozier. As a result, he received a far worse sentence than the rest of his co-defendants. He was given life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus an additional 20 years. All but $69,000 of the stolen money was eventually recovered and returned to Calder Pinkston. However, due to insurance concerns, the firm would inevitably close their doors for good, not long after Gail Spencer's murder. Her passing came as a result of selfish greed, coordinated by her new co-worker, Tracy Jones. But perhaps equally as culpable in this case were her associates. Michael Brett Kelly, on the other hand, is arguably an entirely different breed of monster altogether. We can only hope the prayer he took part in with detectives will go unanswered, as there's a special place in hell for someone like Kelly, a man other inmates in the Georgia Department of Corrections have deemed the grandma killer. Needless to say, he's got a long time to think about his actions, whether he uses that time accordingly or if he's remorseful in the slightest is irrelevant, as not even God can save him now. <laughs>